Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. Each month I'll be talking with industry leaders from a range of sectors and not-for-profit organisations, or as I prefer to call them, for-purpose organisations. We'll be talking about topical issues in a relaxed conversation style, so sit back and enjoy. My special guest today is Dr Cliff Mallett. I've known Cliff for over 40 years and watched his remarkable career evolve during that time. Cliff is a Professor of Sports Psychology and Coaching at the Queensland University here in Brisbane. He's a teacher, a coach, guiding Olympic and world champion success. He's a keynote presenter and facilitator. He's published more than 150 peer-reviewed scholarly papers, supervised 30-plus PhD students and presented more than 25 international keynote addresses in 12 different countries. He's consulted extensively both nationally and internationally, including the International Olympic Committee, the International Association of Athletic Federations and the International Council of Coaching Excellence. Nationally, with the AFL, NRL, ARU, Tennis Australia, Australia's Sports Commissions, Australian Institute of Sport, the QAS and a broad range of high-profile clubs in AFL, NRL and football. Cliff is regularly sought after with the corporate world for his advisory and mentorship. He's also consulted to several large corporations in Australia. That is an impressive CV. During this podcast, I'll be delving into Cliff's background, asking what attracted him to his career in sports coaching, a subject I'm happy to discuss all day. More importantly, though, I'll be seeking his insights into contemporary leadership, what the research tells us, alongside his experiences of working with leaders in some of Australia's leading organisations. Now, let's introduce Cliff. Hi Cliff, welcome buddy. Thank you, thank you very much for the kind invitation to be here. As I mentioned in my introduction, I've known Cliff for over 40 years, but something that many people probably don't know or remember about Cliff, as a young man he was a very talented athletic himself. Swimming, surf lifesaving, beach sprinting, running, rugby league, touch footy, he was an all-round talented sportsman. So Cliff, my first question is, as we're talking about coaching and leadership, how did you as an athlete in those younger years transition to becoming a coach? What was the interest for you? Uh, I guess uh, the impetus for that was to, in the transition from athlete to coach, was trying to contribute back to society in meaningful ways. So part of that came about because I was a physical education teacher. I always viewed coaching as community service. Right. I never thought I'd have a career in, <laughs> in coaching per se, but uh, I just thought that's just what you did, and yes. I enjoyed that aspect of that work. And it was different to teaching physical education in terms of there was a bit more focus on high performance or trying to get people to get the best out of themselves. And it sort of just morphed from there as a consequence. So a couple of athletes made me look good. (laughs) And, And again, that gives you, that opens the door for opportunities to learn and to grow as a person and as a professional. Um, And then you go out and you continue to become better at what you do. And you've coached hundreds of athletes, talented athletes in your career. Um, is there one that stands out and, and, and what, what, why would they stand out if there is this one particular one? Yeah, no, certainly there is one that stood out. Uh, he stood out primarily because of his uh, passion for what he did. Yep. So a lot of athletes are really focused on uh, just the outcome. Um, and a lot of athletes post their career don't continue to invest in themselves and yep. invest in 
uh, healthy lifestyle. But this particular guy, Steve Brimacombe, who was came uh, ninth at the Olympics in 1996 yep, in the I 200. Yeah. Um, and he missed the final by three hundredths of a second. But his passion for what he did and his drive, his determination and mental toughness, you know, as a coach, like uh, any sort of leader, you are influenced by those you work with. So a lot of people think it's, uh, it's a one-way traffic in terms of influence down, but I was influenced by many of the athletes I coached, and him in particular, in terms of just his uh, mental fortitude. You're best known, or one of your great achievements, of course, is um, athletics Olympic success. What I'm interested in is, um, in the Olympic fields, track and field is probably the toughest of all events, because every country in the world has got athletes. You know, we, we often laud our swimmers, and rightly so, fantastic athletes, but the reality is there's only a limited number of countries that swim, yeah. let's be clear. But track and field, everyone runs, and you know everyone's involved in it. So how did you convince Australian athletes they could compete and succeed in that really tough competition? Yeah, good question. I always have this, this, this uh, notion that uh, are you competitive? You know, are you in the hunt? Are you within range? So rather than talking about whether you're going to win a medal or can win a medal, it's like, are we competitive with the best teams? And in going into Athens 2004, the 4x4 relay were competitive. Um, I was drip-feeding them information. So as a coach, you don't need to keep telling people they should be confident and they're going to be successful. It actually adds more pressure. So I drip-fed a lot of information that allowed them to come to that conclusion themselves that they were in the hunt. And, um, and I just did that with data. I had information that was uh, legitimate, uh, that allowed them to make that conclusion and within themselves as an individual part of that team but also them as a collective because we worked hard on how do we maximise baton exchange. So a lot of people yep. think it's quite straightforward. Only the Americans really train that through their collegiate system. Yep. But we spent a fair bit of time uh, developing the, that cohesion um, and it just so happened they produced the time that they were expected to produce, and that was good enough to, to win a silver medal. I still remember it, a fantastic success. But I understand in recent years now your career has evolved in now not coaching elite athletes but actually coaching coaches, in particularly in some pretty high-profile sports, as I mentioned in the intro, AFL, NRL, uh, football, um, athletics. So what's the approach or the, the, the way in which you support coaches now who are coaching elite athletes? Much the same principles are, are at play. Primarily, the focus is really on facilitating learning. So because I come from a, a teaching background, telling people what to do and how to, to carve out their, uh, their work is not all that helpful because the wicket keeper gets pretty busy. So I've always had a clear focus on my job is to guide, facilitate, nurture other people's learning and how do you create an environment that allows people to thrive and flourish. So it's it's what we call a greenhouse effect. So how do you create a predictable, accepting environment that allows people to flourish without you thinking that you've actually uh, directly uh, contributed to their development? And what I learned as coaching athletes is that I like asking coaches, you know, what do you think your percentage contribution is to a performance? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And for me, it's a really important question to interrogate. And it's something we should always be looking at because it's about impact. It's about influence. You may get some coaches who say as high as 80%. And I'm just just flabbergasted. I was like, wow. Because I tried to work it out. I tried to think, you know, 
up to about 20 years of age, uh, your contribution's probably been keeping them in the sport. Yep. You know, they probably continue to uh, mature physically and psychologically uh, at around 18 to 20. But after that, maybe you've made a co-contribution to their performance. So coaches and, and leaders should be modest about that co-contribution. But for me, I felt like my contribution to the athlete was uh, in the vicinity of somewhere between um, 0 and 3%. Oh, okay, and I say, and I, and so it's minimal. It might sound minimal, but it's a co-contribution with a whole team of people Correct. who are trying to create this excellence. And and first and foremost, credit's got to go to the athlete who does all the work. Yeah, you know. But I often think sometimes that great coaches um, do no harm, and that oh, sounds right. a bit controversial because I think that um, our intentions are honourable as a coach, yep. as a parent, as a leader. Uh, but sometimes we overplay our role. And in overplaying our role, we try to do too much and we actually kill people with kindness. We don't allow people to grow, which means, as you would know as a parent, it's allowing them opportunities to fail. And that's just right. part of the learning process. And, and how does it go with, we're talking middle-aged men often you're, you're, mm. you're working with, how do, they, how do they respond to that? I mean, that's, that's probably taking them... To different thinking than how they were yeah. raised as an athlete and how they were coached themselves, so that must be a bit transformational, I would, I would uh, guess. Yeah, it it turns things on its head because much of what you try to do as a leader in any capacity in any context uh, is to achieve particular outcomes. Sure. And the problem we all have is that as much as we try to predict and control uh, what those outcomes are going to be, it ignores the messiness of the work and it ignores the fact that much of what we do is uncontrollable and unpredictable. So to go from uh, a high degree of predictability and controllability to actually having this notion that really I've just got to be fluid, I've got some structure, but I've got to be fluid within that and adapt to this dynamic environment where where it wax and wanes Mm. is part of that learning process. And for people who – some people are very task-driven, it's all about the outcome – uh, others are a bit more uh, relationship-based. Yes. Uh, not always people are high in both those those areas. But for somebody who's task-driven, it is very difficult to let go of the reins. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging. So some of these people really take a long time to develop uh, their skills that allow them to be a bit more fluid and flexible and adaptable. I just want to pick up the point, you know, we've got an excellent female tennis player present. Yep. One thing that stands out for me, not only her athletic ability and the fact now she's world number one, but every time you hear her speak, she goes to pains to say it's been a team performance. Mm. Impressive, isn't it? And so I'm, I'm thinking that the coach has really developed a, a team around her and she's understanding that and, and appreciative of that. Would, would you agree? Yes, very much so. The, the coach acts as a conductor of an orchestra. Yeah, and getting everybody on on the same page, moving in the same direction, mm. is sounds easy in theory. Mm. But the one thing you learn over time is working with others is is not all that easy. Yeah. It's very challenging, <laughs> and in some cases, it's more challenging than others. And it's it sort of reminds me of you know, working with difficult people is challenging. But there's a famous quote by Abraham Lincoln who, who in the 1850s said that uh, I don't like that person. Right, so I better get to know them better. Uh, and in Australian society, we, what we tend to do is to avoid that sort of tension. Mm, we don't like mm, mm. conflict and we tend to avoid those people. And um, 
rather than thinking about, well, how do I get to work with these people? How can I work with them better so that everybody benefits as a consequence? And in a team environment, that's often critical, isn't it? Because we don't always like the people we're in the team with. We don't choose them. They're chosen often for us. Yeah, and certainly that's the case in professional football because uh, if you come in as a new coach, like Kevin Walters has, he's inherited players that he had no say in recruiting. Correct. And then it takes a period of time as to how you keep changing that, that roster uh, and even where you put them uh, within the team mm. might change. Mm. So it's um, yeah, it's a tricky space. As I mentioned earlier, uh, and I know a lot of our listeners will be very interested in the work that you've done with leaders uh, as well as, as part of your, your career development. Um, you know, you, you've spent a lot of time in recent years working with leaders of large corporations about leadership. My first question on that is, you know, when we think of leadership, we often focus on the leader, someone we know, and we talk about his or her strengths or their characteristics and their personality type, etc. Does that describe leadership? Yeah, uh, people will spend um, apparently I think the numbers in the billions of dollars per year to do leadership courses and, and programs, and there's not much evidence that actually any of that has any impact. <laughs> okay. Right, so that's a pretty bold statement. Yeah. Um, but everything we try to do as a leader is about impact. You know, the, the one word that is consistent in definitions of leadership is influence. Yes. You know, but we don't always know how we influence, and that's one of the things that I learn as a coach too is that after about five or ten years, they come back to you and say, thank you. And they start to tell you what they're thanking you for. No one's ever come back to me and said, thank you for making me run faster. Yeah. But what they come back to is say that you, you helped me as a person. Yep. Right? That's when you start to understand the power you have in, in a leadership position and how you influence others. It's, um, it's in more of those less tangible things. Sure. Right? So... Uh, one of the problems we have in leadership, we've been researching leadership for about 80 years. Yep. A majority of that research has actually come out of the United States. Most psychology textbooks come out of the United States. Mm-hmm. And the focus of all that work is on what's special about the leader. And even my PhD was focused on trying to understand motivation of elite performers. And uh, again, I was focused on the psychology of the eye. So what makes you special? Uh, what makes you tick? And as a consequence of that, where we've, we've focused on has been, uh, let's focus on what are the special qualities of the leader. And this dates back to historical accounts of great leaders, which were typically in the military. Yep. Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, uh, Napoleon, and then they became political leaders. What we're always doing is in hindsight, in retrospect, we're trying to identify what's special about those people because they must have special qualities. Yeah. Um, and even the, the more recent understanding of, of leadership that's come out of North America is in around transformational leadership, and it's pretty trendy. But it's actually a return back to great man theory because it's about what are the qualities of these people, mm. right? And, and in talking about the qualities of those people, it's actually not talking about the people they're actually leading. So the psychology of the eye is helpful to a point, but what we can say with some confidence over a long period of time is that those qualities are unique to that person and probably to the situation. So one of the lessons out of that is be who you are and, and know who you are and understand your context. But we also need to recalibrate our thinking away from uh, what's special about the leader because that promotes things like narcissism, hubris, yep. Yep. Uh, where we need to focus more on, well, who are you leading and how do you know that you're actually influencing and in what ways are you influencing? Yep. 
and and there's there's books written by by a number of scholars in around well why would anyone follow you you know what what's why am i following you and even this notion of charisma that's part of the latest transformational leadership understanding is that you know you're charismatic and you inspire well Charisma is bestowed upon you by the followers, not by you. Correct. Like people don't, you know, apart from Trump, uh, who goes around <laughs> telling everybody how charismatic he is. But most people find somebody uh, who's similar to them charismatic, right? So we need to recalibrate our thinking around leadership to move beyond what's special about the leader to actually understand leaders are only leadership is only possible if there's followers. Followers, yeah. So to focus on one of those actors as opposed to both actors, yeah. both the leader and the follower, and understand it in a context um, really is doing an injustice to uh, how we develop people to get better at leading and influencing others in, in adaptive ways. So we move to what I've heard you describe as the psychology of we rather than yeah. the psychology of I. Yeah. So just unpack what the research is telling us around around that and in in importance of groups i suppose as yeah. well if i said to you uh, who are you and how would you describe yourself people tend to describe themselves in terms of the groups to which they belong yep so a key point out of that is that when you you try to answer the question who am i we we tend to define ourselves in terms of the groups that we belong to uh, with State of Origin coming up, we're very keen to call ourselves a Queenslander. You bet. Uh, if um, if uh, you're from Brisbane, uh, you might think the Broncos. You have allegiance to the Broncos. I don't, of course. <laughs> I, I, my, my allegiance, and I'm tribal because my dad came from Townsville, but yes. I've also worked with the Cowboys, so I still have the strong attachment to the Cowboys and I still want them to do well. Correct. So we have these groups, and on the base of that group membership, we actually start to become immersed in what are the group norms and values. And um, those groups, norms and values actually shape how we behave. And this is evidenced in, in adolescence about parents always want their children to be in a particular group where there's good values yes. uh, versus not so good. Uh, but you can't always orchestrate those sorts of things. Yes. But group membership shapes how you behave. So there's a famous scholar from uh, Dan McAdams from Northwestern University in Chicago who's done a lot of work on life stories and narrative psychology. And in understanding who we are as people um, and knowing self, we can't ignore the fact that who you hang around with actually shapes your behaviour, right? So we don't behave consistently like individual psychology will talk about. We don't have traits that actually hold up across contexts. Yep. So if, if the, the listeners think about, if you're in a social occasion, uh, how does that compare with being your, with your immediate family? Mm-hmm. How does uh, an extended family gathering, how does a sporting trip? When you're in different groups, you actually uh, recalibrate your, uh, your behaviours. Yes. You know, so we're actually humans are chameleon. We adapt because we know we have to adapt. Yes. The group's really important, and that's, uh, the group's been important for... Uh, tens of thousands of years it's all part of human evolution so if you go back to homo sapiens uh, neanderthals you know one of the questions is why did neanderthals uh, die out versus homo sapiens and um, one one view is that they were able to work in groups and you have to work in groups to survive yes so we've been hardwired since that time to actually be social to be tribal yes and most countries are tribal yes the united states there's nothing you know, united about the United States, to be quite honest. Yes. Uh, countries like Germany, Italy are still quite provincial. 
Yes. Right? They're still almost like city-states, yep. different parts of the UK. You know, yep. uh, There's still some tribalism in, even in Australia because of the federated system. Correct. So we, we like to align ourselves and attach ourselves to this group identity. And that group identity, the, the stronger that becomes, uh, the stronger that emotional attachment, the, the more likely you're going to behave in ways that's consistent with... Um, uh, the group norms and values. And this explains a lot of stereotype. Mm. Uh, it explains a lot of prejudice. It explains a lot of hooliganism, yeah. uh, particularly in uh, football yeah. fans that play, particularly in, in, in Europe and yeah. in South America. Yeah. So we all want to belong to a group. Sure. And at school, when you're coming through, you actually want to belong to the, the in-group, not sure. the out-group. Yep. So we start to create these these group memberships and we have varying degrees of affiliation, a sense of belonging, uh, varying levels of support, both in us giving to the group and the group giving back to us. Mm-hmm. And the stronger that is, the more likely I am going to be uh, behaving in ways that's consistent with that group, even if they're in contrast with my personal values. So if the groups are important, and, and, and I hear you, how does that link now to our thinking about leadership? Now, you mentioned we spent a lot of time talking about the characteristic of leaders, but I'm hearing that that's not really going to be helpful if, if we're thinking about groups and group membership yeah. and the importance of groups. So in terms of understanding leadership, um, in, in recalibrating a focus away a little bit from what's special about the leader, yeah. uh, we might now think about, well, how does the leader make the group feel special? Right. Right, so it's a shift in emphasis. So uh, a lot of people want uh, binary um, positions. So it's it's this or this. You know, yeah. it's it's either or. It's much of life's really about how you, um, you you work with these competing tensions sometimes. So yes, there is an I in team, right? But there's also a team. So how do you get somebody to surrender some of the I for the we? Yes. So how do you forego? It's all about you to actually say, is this in the best interest of the team? Yes. So for me, when I'm talking to, to coaches, I'm talking to players, um, I'm talking about, well, uh, is the decision uh, that you make, is the behaviour that you enact, is that going to be helpful or unhelpful to the team yep. or group? So they're deciding that. Yeah, and that's what they've got to say. Am I behaving in ways that's consistent? So with coaches, for example... If uh, uh, the, the media love to portray coaches as being um, impulsive, uh, emotional, uh, smashing things in the, in the, in the coaching box. Yes. Uh, most Craig of them Bellamy ca- comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, Craig does come to mind. <laughs> but most of the time they're pretty calm. Yes. The media just like to sensationalise yes. things. Yeah. But a question we might ask of the coaches is, uh, is you losing your cool and blasting the players, who is that actually helping? And most of them is probably helping themselves. They're trying to deal with their own frustrations because anger masks uh, a deeper emotion, which is shame. Shame is associated with not performing well. Yes. So you then take that that, that anger on either yourself or others. Like in tennis, they they smash their rackets, they abuse the umpire, uh, a few other things. Um, But if you're asking people, is your behaviour helpful to the group? So part of it's about shifting the focus away from me and me dealing with my own emotions. Yes. Uh, we need to recalibrate our thinking and getting our awareness to ask a question, what do I do that's most helpful to the group? 
Mm. You know, and that's what leadership for me is about. It's about how do we promote the sense of us. So my job is not to tell you um, every inch of the way what to do yes. and how to do it. I need to help you to spin your own plates. So how do we create an environment where we allow people to work interdependently to actually achieve what they want to achieve? Mm. And so I, I get a get a, a view that leaders have to get a sense of themselves as, as part yeah. of this transformation. Agreed? A big part of uh, what we try to do with uh, people is... Uh, is to get them to understand in a deeper way who they are. Mm. But what we typically do in organisations and sport is we send them to to do a psychology test, a trait psychology test, and then we punch in some data and we produce a lovely little profile that says, this is who you are. It's not all that helpful. Because when you tell somebody who they are, it's like labelling in psychology, you know. Um, When you label somebody, they become the label. You know, so I've got one PhD student who's done um, a trait profile on himself three times. He got three different profiles. You know, so, so bipolar. Yeah. Well, so, so who is who's the real you? That's right. You know, so we need to move away from telling people who they are to actually helping them to co-construct with you who they are. Who they are. So yeah. we, we use approaches whereby we're keen to give uh, people the tools to help them to know themselves better. Yes. Through the stories they tell about uh, incidents in their life that actually have shaped them and who they are and what they really value and how they've been reshaped over time. Mm. You know, so why do you go left versus right at a particular time in your life? Mm. You know, how you deal with positive and negative incidents in your life. Mm. So giving people the tools uh, promotes their sense of control in understanding who they are. Yep. And it's up to them then how they share that um, and what depth they and breadth, they might share that with others. But knowing self is about reflexivity. It's about how, how do I really understand who I am? But people need tools to allow them to do that. And, and I quite often use the, the analogy that um, in trying to develop a portrait of somebody, uh, they have some pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. They're probably missing some. There's processes that you can use to give them the additional pieces of the puzzle and then with them, you can co-construct what those pe- how those pieces are going to work together. Mm. Now, of course, some people don't have a nice portrait in terms of it's coherent. Yep. Uh, and there's continuity in their lives that, you know, their past, their, their presence and where they're going um, has this, this notion of continuity. Uh, some people's portraits are a bit of a dog's breakfast, yep. you know, and that's... But even understanding that is, is really helpful. Yes. You know, so how can you help others if you don't really have a, a comprehensive understanding of who you are. Many of our clients uh, operate rural and regional um, organisations in aged care, disability, health, community services. You know, they're, they're leaders um, in small communities. They're leaders of, of small teams uh, in, their, in their right. What are, what are some of the key takeaways, uh, messages that, that you have for them in terms of First, understanding themselves and their leadership approach to leadership. In promoting a sense of the group, uh, there's there's some pillars that are I think are really really important. Yep. And the first one is we need to be clear that um, are we representative of the group? So are we a prototype of the group? So if you look at John Howard, one of the, the, the skills he had as a politician 
uh, even if you don't agree with his, his ideologies. Uh, one of the skills he had was he always was walking in around either an Australian Olympic tracksuit, <laughs> right, or a Wallabies jersey, pretending he's one of the people. Yep. Uh, it didn't work well for Turnbull when you've got $200 million, million of, uh, of wealth <laughs> to think you're representative of the people. But if the people don't see you as one of them, they don't, you know, you don't connect with the, yep. the people, you're not in the trenches sometimes with the people, uh, they won't follow. Yep. You know, so we... we we have we, we if you're a Labor Party supporter, you find the leader of the Labor Party charismatic, but you don't find the, yeah. the leader of the Liberal Party, and vice versa. Sure. So you've got to be a representative of, of the values yeah. and what's important uh, for the group. Yep. The second pillar that's really really important that people forget about, um, and this really connects back to the psychology of the eye, is if people think you're doing it for you, uh, you're being self-promotional. You're gone. So as soon as people think that you're looking after yourself and your own personal interests at the expense of the group, you will have a, a great difficulty in getting them to change those perceptions. Mm-hmm. And it plays out a little bit for young players who come through sport who have probably had leadership roles, which probably really means they tossed the coin <laughs> and they made some other decisions because they, the, they were getting the ball all the time. Yep. But when they then come into being drafted in professional sport, they think that they're, they're going to be the leader. I, I'm aspiring to be the captain. Well, we, we try to put brakes on those people because that ambition and aspiration, whilst it might be bubbling along internally, to, to pursue that with, uh, with gusto uh, doesn't lead to good outcomes mm. because people think it's all about you looking after yourself. Yeah. Leadership's more a journey whereby there's a whole lengthy process that you'll learn a lot of stuff by, by thinking about your behaviour and how it influences others. But we've got to resist the temptation of thinking it's all about me. And Mourinho is a very good example. Yep. You know, it's a highly successful soccer coach in Europe, but uh, by the time it gets to the second and third season, he's telling everybody it's all about me. You know, the team's winning because it's me. Well, mm. how would you feel if you're a player mm. or a, a subordinate or an employee and your boss is taking all the credit. Yeah. You know, so distancing yourself from the people, which happened to both the French and the Russian aristocracies, mm-hmm. that didn't end well, <laughs> um, compared to the British uh, monarchy who actually, you know, Queen Elizabeth I, that famous speech in 1600 uh, where she said, you know, I may not be the smartest leader, I may not be the, the best leader, but no one will love you more. Like, yeah. how to connect with the people. Yeah. So... That key, that key pillar about doing it for us um, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And then, th- then there's a couple of other pillars about, well, how do you craft a sense of us? Yep. How do you give vision and you give uh, direction uh, and how do you provide the glue for people uh, in the organisation? And then how do you make people matter? So in sport, we've got to move away from um, winning's the only thing. Yes. Because... People's emotional connection to groups goes beyond the outcome. Yes. People want uh, a stronger value proposition as to, I play for uh, the Brisbane Lions, it means more to me than just winning a premiership. Yep. You know, there's a sense of camaraderie. This is just, uh, this is a big part of who I am. Mm. So we have to do things like uh, have rituals. How do you, how do you uh, induct a person when they come into the workplace? Yep. Like when I when I started as an academic, I was given a five hundred page book handbook <laughs> and said, 
Handbook of University Policies and Procedures. Procedures. Go read it. Go read it. (laughs) I'm trying to do research. (laughs) I'm trying to prepare some lectures. How we go about engaging new members, how do we get our established members uh, uh, with newbies coming in, all that sort of stuff. I often say you need to celebrate your successes too and have rituals around that. Yes. So the team feels all part of that success. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and a good example with the rituals is, is the, the well-known Harker of the All Blacks. Yes. But what might be less well-known is the All Blacks up until about 1987 were doing the Harker, but nobody really knew why. So they were going through the motions of doing it. So culture's always about uh, how things are done around here. Yes. Right? But sometimes we're doing things, we're going, why are we doing this? Mm. But no one asks those questions. Sure. And are there better ways of doing things? Yes. So... In 1987, the Kiwis started to think through, well, if we're going to do this, we do it properly. So let's understand our history. So a big part of trying to make people matter is understanding the history of an organisation, where you've come from, where you're at and where you're going, and make those links between those different phases. So understanding the history of an organisation is central to promoting a sense of identity with that organisation. And a lot of sporting clubs are trying to do that better. Yes. It doesn't mean that you're wedded to the past. And, that, and there's examples in sport where you have a successful period, um, like the Lions did in the early, early noughties, and then they had a, a pretty poor period. But they kept wanting to go back to their successful period. Well, yeah. you're reminding cool. people of their failures. Yeah. They were successful, but then you weren't part of that. Yeah. So it's embraced the history and the past um, and, and learn from that, but... It's like the All Blacks have tried to do. How do we now add to that legacy? How, yeah. What's our contribution? Because if we're making a contribution with our current group, we're going to feel good about ourselves mm. and we're going to leave the place um, in, uh, in a better position yep. than when we got there. Cliff, um, time flies and uh, we could talk all day and uh, I know we'll, uh, we'll be talking more over that bottle of red that I promised you for coming along today. So... <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your insights. And you know, sport is an area that everyone's connected to you know, emotionally and um, uh, through their village group connections. And so we can draw so many parallels and learnings and lessons from, from that environment. And I, I really love the way you brought that through to the, to the work environment, to the professional environment that, that really teaches us so many lessons about how we, how we can work well with our groups, how we can be leading organisations more effectively with the, the teams or the groups or the players that we have as part of our, our team. So thanks for your insight. I'm, I'm sure we'll get some great feedback from our conversation and um, thanks again. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communications consultant, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our fifth podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about the issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seam and Hurd.